Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. This morning we're beginning a new series uh, that we're calling Mythbusters. And what we're going to be doing for the next month or so is just look at some of the most commonly held um, thoughts and ideas that people have about God, about faith, about religion. And what we're going to do is, is take a look at each of these things, some of the most popular ones, and, and kind of ask the question, are they valid? Are these viewpoints valid? Are they plausible? Do they even really matter? And my hope through this series is, I've got three things. First is, is that if you have a friend who is searching for faith, or a friend who's asking questions about faith, that you would be bold enough during this series to invite them. That you would bring somebody along who has those kinds of questions, so can help address those questions that they might have. And if not that, at least maybe pick up the CD, you know, or, or direct them to the podcast somehow. But help your friends who are searching for faith discover that. Now, second hope that I have through this is that describes you. If you're in that seeker category, if you've got questions, you've got um, doubts maybe about all of this, that hopefully through this series I'll help you um, through this and in your search to discover what it is that God has for you. And I think there's a third category, and it probably fits most of us this morning. Most of us here would consider ourselves believers, Christ followers, but still maybe have lingering questions of your own. And I hope through this series to get, give you a better understanding uh, and help you develop a, a deeper and more, more thoughtful faith. Um, so here's the question we're going to look at this morning. Uh, you've probably heard it before, but it's, uh, the idea is this, with all the different religions and philosophies, and ideas about faith and God, how should we know what to believe? How do we know what to believe? With all the different religions there are, there are Christians of a variety of flavors, there are Jews, there are Muslims, Shiites, Sunni, Sunni. Um, there's Buddhists, Hindus, Baha'is, Deists, Pantheists, Atheists, Agnostics, Stoics, New Agers, all of these different thoughts. Why should I believe I'm right? How do I understand my own faith? And, and how do I discover faith? And you probably heard the question phrased somewhere along the lines of something like this. Aren't all religions basically the same? I, I just had a conversation Friday this week with someone asking about our church and what kind of church we were. And I said, well, we're a non-denominational church, Christian church. She said, well, so you're Christian-based? I said, yes, we're Christian-based. She said, well, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. I believe all religions are the same. And I said, you might want to come to this series. We're starting this Sunday. <laughs> Because that's a very common belief. That's a very common thought that people hold. Aren't all religions just basically the same? I mean, aren't they all just really different paths to the same end? Don't they have the same goal in mind? Um, you know, aren't they all basically the same? And, and sometimes it's, it's put together like this. You probably heard this illustration before. It's five blind men who, who are trying to describe an elephant. And, and each of these blind men get a different part of the elephant to touch and feel and, and, and to get a sense of. And then they have to describe what an elephant is. And, and the first blind man gets a hold of the trunk and says, an elephant is like a hose. And, and another, another of the blind men gets, gets the hold of the ear and starts feeling the ear and says, an elephant is like a giant fan. Another blind man ho- put, you know, holds the side and says, an elephant is like a wall. Another one of the blind men Hold on to the leg and says, it's like a tree. Another gets a port of the tail. Says, it's like a rope. Five blind men, all describing the same elephant, all have different ideas of what it is. And that's somehow, it's, somehow sometimes how it's described. 
That all religions are just blind men trying to describe something that nobody can describe. And you may have heard that illustration before. So this morning, what we're going to look at is, okay, so what do different religions teach? Are there points of commonality? Are there things that all religions have in, 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 in common? And are there differences? And can these differences be resolved or not resolved? Because, you see, if all religions are the same, then it really doesn't matter what you believe. It really doesn't, because if they are all basically the same, then it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in your belief. Or in fact, it doesn't even matter if you believe or not, (laughs) if they're all the same. But if not, if they're different, well then, the choices you make with regard to faith are really important. They're vital. Now, I'm going to say up front, okay, this morning, I'm going to say up front, I know A study in comparative religions can be the most dull and boring thing in the world. If you ever had to take a comparative religions class, you know what I'm talking about. I will do my best not to bore you this morning, okay? I promise. I will do my best. And the other thing I want to say up front is I don't want to unfairly portray any religion. And and in the little bit limited time we have this morning, a lot of things are going to be kind of oversimplification. I will try not to do that as well. But here's the thing. I want you to know what I believe. I believe it does matter. I believe life and death hang in the balance. I believe the stakes are high and people's eternity is at risk. And someday, a lot of people, a lot of people are going to find out when they die, they were wrong. I believe that. And I also believe that Jesus offers our best hope. I believe to learn from And to follow and to trust Jesus is the only real hope that we have. So I'm going to let you know that up front. But see, it doesn't matter so much what I believe. Because really what it comes down to is you have to make your own choice. What will you believe? Because what you choose will determine how you will live. What you choose about faith will will determine what you build your life on. It will answer the question for you, why am I here? What cause will I serve? What will define my character? What legacy will I leave? Those are God questions. They are important questions. They are questions that science cannot answer. They are questions of faith. And this idea of multiple religions is nothing new. It is nothing new. It goes back since since creation. (laughs) From the beginning of time, from the beginning of mankind, there have been varieties of beliefs and and understandings and thoughts and ideas when it comes to the things of God. And 2,000 years ago, the hotbed of all of this was the Greek culture. The Greek culture was filled with, with thoughts and ideas about God, about philosophy, about the meaning of life, and all those kinds of things. And, and the hotbed of all of that Greek culture was the city of Athens. And in the city of Athens, the Apostle Paul made a visit. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 17. And he went to the city of Athens, and he walked around the city of Athens, and there were God, statues and idols to gods of varying shapes and forms. And, and, and he came, and he met with some of the philosophers of his day. And let me pick it up in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, meaning other followers, to meet him in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. 
where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the the latest ideas. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine is being, being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such or, or ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Demiris, and a number of others. Paul was meeting with people whose culture pretty much reflects our own. All kinds of different ideas, all kinds of different philosophies, all kinds of different thoughts about faith, about God, about all of those things. And what he did was he sat down and started where they were at and helped them to understand where he was coming from. And what he did in that was he pointed out some very basic differences, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Some basic differences between what Christianity teaches and every other religion or philosophy. And again, we can't cover them all, so we're going to deal you know, with in generalities this morning. But what I want you to understand this morning is why I have chosen to follow Christ. I want you to know why I believe what I believe. And there's a lot of other reasons, but here's a few of them. One is this, that while all religions might believe in the spiritual, not all religions believe in a creator God. See, all religion tries to deal with and grasp with this idea of the supernatural, the the transcendent, um, the the mystery, the things that cannot be proven or disproven by empirical data. Now, the naturalist or the atheist would say, that's all there is. The universe is just a collection of atoms. Man is just a collection of atoms. What you see, this is it. This is sum and substance of all reality, of all that exists, and this is it. That's all there is. The religious would say, no, there's something more. There's something beyond what can be quantified by science or reason. There is something more, something mysterious, something beyond our own understanding. And it cannot be proven or disproven one way or the other. Charles Colson writes about a time he was invited to a, a very exclusive banquet. And he was sitting at a table with a very distinguished looking man, very intelligent, reasoned man that was sitting with him and found out who he was and he just said up front, he says, I need you to know I'm an atheist. 
Colson said, well, that's very interesting because I've never really met a real atheist. Tell me how you came to that position. Because, you see, atheists believe that the existence of God can be disproved. So I want to know, how did you do that? <laughs> Man paused for a little bit and he said, well, truthfully, maybe I should say I'm not really an atheist. I'm an agnostic. To which Colson said, well, then tell me, tell me when you gave up your search for God. What do you mean? He said, well, agnostic believes that, that a search for God will never be finished, that, that you will never be able to, because God cannot be found. And I just want to know, because to be able to make that statement, you must have conducted an exhaustive search and came to this conclusion that he cannot be found. So when did you give up your search for God? He said, needless to say, there wasn't much conversation the rest of the dinner. <laughs> the point is this. Even atheists and agnostics have a system of faith. They have a system of belief. Even atheists have some form of faith, some system of belief. Even if their belief is to not believe. That takes faith of some kind. See, everyone, every human being has a hunger for meaning. Has a hunger for significance. Wants to live lives of purpose and meaning. And that's what drives That's what drives our search for answers. That's what Paul was referring to when he spoke to these people. When he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And the truth is, everybody's got one of those. Whether you want to admit it or not. Everybody has this unknown. They may not be able to describe And those who are religious, those who follow religion say, there is something more. Now, the point of divergence is, what sort of God is it that you believe in? And here, there is a difference. Because not all religions agree on that. The pantheists would say, God is not really someone personal. God is more of an an ultimate reality. And and that in truth, man and matter and, and nature and God, they are all one. And what we need to do is discover the oneness And we need to transcend this illusion of self and of body and of matter. And and, and become one with the universe. That's the kind of God most Eastern religions talk about when they talk about God. It's not a personal being. It is just the oneness of the universe. Now, on the other hand, a monotheist, which basically Christians, Jews, Muslims are the three greatest in that category, would say, no, there is a personal God. There is a God who is infinite, who is beyond his creation, that he is wholly distinct and separate from creation. He is something other. It's what Paul talked to the Athenians about. The God who made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That God is is different. He is separate from his creation. He is wholly other. C.S. Lewis talks about this difference between a pantheist and a monotheist. He says sometimes we use a description of an artist who, who, who is a sculptor or maybe a painter. And we say he really put himself into his work. The pantheist would say that, that, that for God, that's kind of God exists in nature. And, and, and it's God who animates all of life and all of nature. And C.S. Lewis would say... When we talk about the Christian God, 
We talk about the, the creator God. What we are saying is it's not just someone who put himself into it. Yes, he put himself into it. His passion, his ideas, his thoughts, his, his creativity. But he and his picture are not the same thing. And that's what monotheists believe. That God is a creator God. He is not the same at his, as his creation. Psalm 19, David wrote these words. The heavens declare the glory of the God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That God is different from his creation. His creation points to him, but he is different than his creation. And, and above that, that humans are different than the rest of creation. That humans are a unique part of God's creation. We are made in the image of God. That human beings are possessors of a soul. And that's what makes us distinct and separate from all of other creation. Again, Psalm, this time 139. David wrote, you created me in my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Where the pantheist would say that, that, that man is just a part of this larger reality. And, and his life is fated from beginning to end. The Christian, the Jew, the Muslim would say, no. Man is different. Man has value. Man has a will. Man has a choice. His life is not fated by karma. He has a choice. And so really what you see is these are not just differences. These are irreconcilable viewpoints. In this one idea of just who is God and what is God, there's divergence in, in, among people who are religious. And, and religions teach different things about that. And they are irre irreconcilable. You can't say they are all the same because there are two very, very different viewpoints. A second area in which there's divergence is when it comes to morality. Because most religions, probably just about all religions, give moral instruction. They provide a moral code, but not all address the problem of guilt. See, we have this sense of right and wrong. We all do. Again, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, points this out. He says, you can tell because of the way that people argue. Anybody here ever been in an argument? <laughs> Anybody? No? Am I the only one? Nobody else ever? When you listen to people argue, when you are involved in an argument, what kind of things do we say when we are in arguments? When we're, when we're arguing over something, one of the things that we always keep coming back to, it's not fair. It's not right. He got a bigger piece, a bigger scoop of ice cream than I did. That's not fair. He got more pie on his plate than I did. That's not right. We have this sense of right and wrong. And when we argue, we show that. And C.S. Lewis, that's an argument for the existence of God. Because we have this sense of right and wrong. What we believe is there is a way we ought to behave. We ought to behave. We know there is a right. We know there is wrong. It's what Paul talks about when he wrote to the Roman church. The requirements of the law are written on their hearts. They're written on the human heart. What is he talking about? He is talking about that sense of right and wrong. It's written on the human heart. We all carry that sense of right and wrong. Their conscience now bearing also bearing witness with their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. It's in our being. It's how created, God created us and wired us up. We have this sense of right and wrong. And every time we argue over something, we are showing that there is something about us that says there is a right, there is a wrong. There is good and there is evil. That human beings are moral agents. John Ortberg explains this a little bit. He says, here's how you can tell that. Just because 
You notice we never put an animal on trial. You know, a bear mauls a hunter. You know, a lion attacks somebody. And we don't put the lion or the bear on because that's just instinct. That's the way lions are. That's the way bears are. But if a human being does something like that, they are put on trial. They are held accountable because human beings are moral agents. We have this sense of right and wrong. And just about every religion provides some sort of moral code, some sense of how we ought to live. Now, for Hindus, Buddhists, the answer is meditation. Because the problem is our selfishness. And the way that we address that is through, through meditation, we confront our own self, our own selfishness. And through that, what we do is then we then eliminate that selfishness by, by renunciation. We give things up to train ourselves to not be selfish. And that is the answer. For the Jew or the Muslim, it is based on law. There is a law. There are commandments that, this, that God has given. This creator God has given law. And there are commandments and there are rituals and there are certain things we are to do and to not do. There is law to be obeyed. There is ritual to be followed. For Judaism, it is circumcision. It is keeping yourself kosher. For Islam, it is praying five times a day, bowing down towards, towards Mecca to, to fulfill a pilgrimage. There are certain rituals and things that you do to be able to better yourself. But the deal is this. Though we all know there is a right and wrong, while we all know there is a, a way we, are ought, we ought to behave, every one of us knows we don't live up to it. We know that. Though we know there is right and wrong, though we know there is a way we ought to live, we don't live that way. Paul said to the Athenians, in the past, God overlooked our ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Now, everybody wants justice. Everybody does. We want things to be right. When someone does wrong, we want justice. There is moral outrage when somebody gets away with something that they shouldn't have gotten away with. Everybody is up in arms. We all scream. It's not fair that Bernie Madoff made all this money and stole all these people. We want justice. AIG, they should not be getting, that's not just, they, we demand justice. We all want justice, except, except when a holy and righteous and just God, the only one who truly has the power to truly do justice, makes judgment, everybody says he's cruel. He's mean, he's angry, he's heartless, he's brutish. And all he is doing it's meeting out justice. See, we all want justice as long as it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> I want you to be held accountable, but if I can get away with it, have at it. See, we all know there's a way we ought to act. There's a way we ought to behave. And we all know deep down not one of us, no matter how hard we try, lives up to the standard. And here's where Christianity departs from any other religion. This is what makes Christianity unique. That Christianity says, yes, there is a right and a wrong. Yes, there is good and evil. And yes, none of us live up to how we ought to live. And that is called sin. 
And whether it is by our own ignorance or in direct rebellion to God, it is all the same. And sin, injustice, demands punishment. That a holy and righteous God can have nothing to do with evil. It is beyond his character. It is something that he cannot allow if he is truly going to be just. All sin deserves punishment. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus took the punishment. Because the punishment for sin is death. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Paul wrote it this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? That God's moral justice, His righteous anger, His holy wrath that demands punishment, Jesus took upon Himself. And that, that is what makes Christianity different. Christians say it's not just a matter of trying to do better because you can't. It is not a matter of trying to make up for the past because you can't. It is not a matter of trying to be a better person because you cannot be perfect. And that's the standard. God does not grade on a curve. It's pass fail. And we all fail. And that's why we need Jesus. Again, these are not just differences. These are irreconcilable differences. And there's a third thing. And here's, I just want to focus on, on maybe the monotheistic traditions. That other religions might believe in a personal God. and might teach about a personal creator God. But only Christians teach that God has become one of us. That God came to be one of us. This is where Christianity stands completely alone from any other religion. Jews, Muslims, Christians would all agree God created us for connection with Him. Paul put it this way, that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us, that God designed us and created us for relationship with Him. He did it so that we would come to Him. He put us where we are and, and, and where we sit in human history and where we live and, and where we do life. He put us here so that we would seek after Him. That this knowledge of good and evil would, would cause us to look for an answer to the problem. That this Creator God who designed us as moral agents and wants to have a relationship with us, would, that, that, that understanding that's written on our heart would cause us to look for Him. That's what Paul is saying here. But where they sharply disagree is on the person of Jesus Christ because the Muslim or the Jew would say, He may have been a teacher, He may have been a prophet, but He could not possibly have been God because that is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. But that was Paul's message. What he taught these people and what he talked to them about was he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And that teaching is unique to Christianity. It's something the Greeks would never understand. Because in Greek and Roman mythology, yeah, the gods would disguise themselves from time to time as human, but they never fully became mortal. And that this Christian God would become a man. 
That's why they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. Because they never heard of such a thing. Nobody had ever heard of such a thing. See, the thing is, we were not just created for God. But God also came for us. And that's what Christians believe. That God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of Son. The Son of God. God Himself became a man so that we might become sons of God, children of God. That that is the extent of God's love not only for his creation, but for his humans. And he loves us so much that he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Now let me ask you, if God would take such a step for us, is it, is it too much? Is it too much to ask for us to share that good news with other people? Is it too much for us to spend an hour and a half, two hours on a Sunday afternoon putting door hangers on? Is it too much for us to invite someone else into this life that we have discovered? Because it is a difference. It is a difference between heaven and hell. It is, the, it is eternity hanging in the balance. It's important stuff because what you believe about God will determine where you spend eternity. And in here, and it's the reason why I am a Christ follower. Because only... Only Jesus deals with my guilt. Only Jesus forgives my failure. Only Jesus paid a price so that I could find life. In his book, What's So Great About Christianity, which I highly recommend, Dinesh D'Souza writes this. Christ paid a debt he didn't owe. Because we owe a debt we cannot pay. Christ on his cross literally assumed all the darkness, loneliness, and sin of the world. Thus, through the extremity of Golgotha, Christ reconciles divine justice and divine mercy and provides man with a passport to heaven. The bridge man was unable to build to God, God has built for man. Christ offers us something for nothing, C.S. Lewis writes. He even offers everything for nothing. In a sense, the whole Christian life consists in accepting that very remarkable offer. So what is the difficulty? The difficulty is realizing that we are sinful and that there is nothing we can do to solve this problem. A related obstacle is accepting God's authority and His plan for our life. These obstacles, in other words, are those of human pride. The Bible doesn't say that salvation is a gift from God. Rather, it says that salvation is the gift of God. God himself is the gift. Heaven is best understood not as a place, but as a description of what it is like to be with God. To be with God requires that we want to be with him, that we accept his presence of himself. In a lovely book on faith, J. Gresham Machen writes that we become Christians not by accepting that Christ died to save others or that he died to save mankind, but that he died to save me. This is what it means to be a born-again Christian. Once we have confronted our pride, we realize that we don't have to do anything to earn our heavenly reward. In fact, there is nothing we can do to earn it. What is denied us by effort is supplied through grace. 
God's hand reaches out to us, steady and sure. All we have to do is take it. This is the uniqueness of the Christian message. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.